Let's pray together. Father, in this time around your word, pray that you will open it to our hearts and our hearts to your word. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Here's a true story for you. An elderly couple were alarmed at the prospect of nuclear war. So they undertook a serious study of all the inhabited places on earth where they could go and live. The idea was to determine where in the world would be least affected should nuclear war break out. They were looking for a place of ultimate security. They studied and they traveled, they traveled and they studied. And eventually they found the place. And so that Christmas, they sent their pastor a card from their new home in the Falkland Islands. But soon, this was in the 1980s, their island paradise was turned into a war zone by Britain and Argentina. In chapter 3 of Habakkuk, the prophet comes to a place of peace, even in the midst of the violence and turmoil that he saw all around him. So to see how Habakkuk got there to that place of peace, and for the benefit of people who've missed the last two weeks, let's do a short recap of the story so far. If you'd like to have the text in front of you, you'll find it on page 942. Habakkuk was a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah. They lived in the latter part of the 7th century BC. And I think it would be fair to say that the times they lived in were truly horrible. The king was Jehoiakim, a son of Josiah. According to Jeremiah, Josiah had been a just king, and in Jeremiah 22, 15, and 16, we read that Josiah did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and Jeremiah says that that is what it means to know God. Sadly, Jehoiakim inherited no such qualities, and his officers took their cue from him. The result... As you can imagine, the land was filled with oppression, injustice, and violence. Jehoiakim had vast palaces built, and he didn't pay the workers a penny. People only work like that under duress. I think it would be fair to say that living under Jehoiakim would have been akin to living in Saddam Hussein's Iraq or Robert Mugabe's Zimbabwe. Chapter 1, not surprisingly, therefore, opens with Habakkuk crying out to the Lord, How long, O Lord? How can a just God look upon so much violence and injustice? And as for the idea of sending the king of Babylon, Nebuchadrezzar, to address it, well, that was like a bad joke. The Babylonians were even more violent and corrupt than the people Habakkuk was complaining about. 
Perhaps God was just going through the motions of doing something, just looking like it, whilst really slinging Habakkuk a defy. Perhaps there really is no justice on this earth, thinks Habakkuk. Perhaps there's no hope of better times ahead. Habakkuk was contemplating a truly horrible situation. And one commentator that I read said that it was like Vietnam, Bosnia, and Rwanda all rolled into one. What was Habakkuk to do? Jeremiah moved in the right circles to take his concerns directly to Jehoiakim. Habakkuk decided to watch and to wait for God's answer at the beginning of chapter 2. And you'll notice a footnote, sorry, a footnote to verse 1 of chapter 2. Habakkuk thought that he'd better be ready with an explanation of himself for when God rebuked him for being so cheeky. So Habakkuk goes deep into prayer and God comes to him with the assurance that he cares as deeply as Habakkuk does about what's going on. And interestingly, there's no rebuke at all in what God says. As God had offered, had honored um, Job for his openness with him, so God honored Habakkuk too. God assures Habakkuk that action will be taken, the revelation will come, but it has to happen at the appointed time. But however long it takes, Habakkuk is to keep waiting because it's important. In fact, it's important enough to write it down for future generations. And then late in chapter 3, we see that Habakkuk has come to a place of trust and peace, despite the terrible times in which he was living. He knows and he trusts that God will intervene because God has done so many times before. So let's turn our attention to chapter 3 and get Habakkuk's understanding of God's previous actions in history. In verse 2, we see that with God there is indeed a holy and righteous anger. He bides his time to give people the opportunity to repent. But God will not be silent forever in the face of violence and injustice. Chapter 2 had been noticeably silent about just whose misdeeds were being spoken of, Israel's or Babylon's. The point is that God's anger is directed at all human pride. But Habakkuk knows that he cannot ask God to reveal his wrath unless he also asks God to remember mercy, because God is a God of wrath and of mercy. The behavior of both Israel and Babylon deserve God's punishment. But Habakkuk has faith to pray that God will temper his anger, temper it with mercy. And the word that is translated mercy is one that signifies a great depth and warmth of love. It's a word that is similarly used of Jesus when we read of him being moved by compassion for people as he was in Mark 6, 34. Jesus had compassion on the crowd who had come to hear him because they were like sheep 
without a shepherd. So we have a firm basis to appeal to God's mercy. It runs deeper than his anger. And even with those like Jehoiakim, who are the worst oppressors of humankind, mercy is still there for them if they call upon it. And so, in verse 3, Habakkuk begins his visitation of God's past mighty acts. He's beginning to perk up. He's in communication with a God who is on the move. God comes to his people himself from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. And although these names may not be familiar, the events are in fact well known. The locations are in Edom. There, there's not Edom, the cheese, they're Edom. They're sites directly associated with Sinai and the giving of the law to Moses. It was an event that took place during the Exodus. So Habakkuk is recalling that time of God's greatest liberation of his people when he took them out of slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. And then in verse 7, Habakkuk contemplates the time when God's people had arrived in the promised land, and even then they were facing opposition. The first people to contest their right to be there were two Bedouin tribes, nothing changes, does it? Cushan and Midian. Both tribes were defeated, the Midianites by Gideon. Habakkuk anticipates that God will again bring deliverance, despite all the internal disorder and corruption that there was, because he had done it before. Now perhaps you'd like to look at verse 8. And there's an interesting change of language that takes place. In verse 3, Habakkuk had referred to God by that general name for him. Now he switches to the name Yahweh, translated Lord in English and using capital letters. It's the name God used of it's the sorry, it's the name used of the God of the covenant, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the fathers of Israel, the God of Moses and Joshua. Habakkuk is now delving deep into the earliest times of Israel's history, back to God's covenant with Abraham. And so he's reminding himself that for hundreds of years, God has had a purpose for Israel as a community with his laws and his justice at her heart. He will not allow his purposes to be thrown off course. And then once again, God's anger is recalled. And that question about God was whether God was angry with the rivers, it's not just poetry, it's not just rhetoric, it's really a reference to pagan deities. The gods of the Canaanites and other nations were thought to take out their anger on nature. The point is that Yahweh is distinct from those gods. So we have this sense of Israel as a community called by God to have his just laws and the worship of him in their midst distinct from the nations around to reveal God 
to the world. And then we have more instances of God's wrath. The imagery of God as a warrior riding out against his foes to crush the wicked because of their treatment of the poor. The language evokes the Exodus again when the Egyptians came after the people of Israel and ended up being drowned in the sea. Horses and chariots and soldiers, everybody. And then from verse 10, we have words that evoke the creation in Genesis 1. Talk of the earth, the deep, sun and moon, the heavens. Habakkuk's meditation has brought him to understand the message of history. Each of the themes he has explored has come from decisive points in the history of God's salvation, creation, the call of Abraham, Moses and the Exodus, life in the promised land. And in verse 13, God's purpose is stated explicitly. You came out to deliver your people. And to do that, it was necessary to crush the leaders of wickedness. They had set their hearts upon oppression and violence to feather their own nests. God could have turned a blind eye to what was going on. At one time, Habakkuk feared that he might. Now Habakkuk knows better. God had intervened before. He would not sling them a defi. By verse 16, Habakkuk is resolved what to do. I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come upon the nation invading us. That is such a contrast with the despairing how long, O Lord, with which the book began. Even though it might seem slow in coming, as God had warned that it might, Habakkuk will wait, even though things may get a whole lot worse yet. No figs, no grapes, no oil, no food, no sheep, no cattle. Total devastation. Worse than Europe after the Second World War. Rather a lot like Pakistan at the moment with the floods. Last week, Alex pointed out to us that this prophet sees a choice in how people respond to difficult times. Chapter 2 and verse 4 tells us that they were getting by by being greedy, grabbing as much as they could, I'm all right, Jack, sort of mentality. And there was the contrast between that and living by faith. By now, Habakkuk has decided that he will live by faith. Or to put it another way, that in this desperate situation, salvation lies in putting his faith in God, in costly trust in God's eternal promises, rather than grabbing and being greedy, even though it may entail real suffering for him, even though he's taking a risk of starving to death. Habakkuk has embraced all of that 
He's counted the cost and given himself to it. And so, if it happens, Habakkuk will not be taken by surprise and thrown off course. He'll rejoice in spite of everything. That is the very best way for Habakkuk the prophet to ensure that he doesn't himself turn into an oppressor of the poor. As we listen to the leaders of our own nation warning us of the austerity of the times that are coming, there are real lessons for us in the book of Habakkuk. As we contemplate the cutbacks that have already been announced. There are lessons for us about concern for those who are poor, bearing an unfair brunt of hardship. There are lessons about bearing hardship with generosity and dignity and keeping faith come what may. But I think there's something deeper that God is saying to us, and it has to do with making sure that we're reading the Old Testament in the right way. Today, the Old Testament has a bit of an image problem because of these passages, and there are many of them, about the wrath of God. To this Old Testament emphasis is ascribed the fear that many people have of God. And I'm not just talking about reverent fear, I'm talking about really disabling terror and a near complete lack of assurance about salvation. Quite a lot of it surfaces in the hospital and I spend quite a lot of my time with people who are really in fear of God. When we read about God being angry in the Bible, we need to ask what he was angry about. In many of the prophets, including the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as well as much less well-known people like Joel and Amos and Micah, and Habakkuk, to name but a few, in all these prophets and more, God's anger is about something very specific. It is because they have turned away from him and the just lifestyle he's ordained for them. True, they're worshipping other gods, and that is what our eyes are often drawn to in these texts. But quite often, Christian people fail to notice that God's anger is also because they just don't care that much about what happens to the poor. Isaiah put it like this. The Lord looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Those who were powerful used their power simply to feather their own nests, whether it was wealth, military or political might, or intellectual power. 
gifts given by God were being used to grab and to oppress to the point of bloodshed when they should have been used to protect and nurture and to build up this just and loving community. How could a loving God stand by and not be angry about this? He could only be unmoved if he didn't care very much for the victims. The anger of God in the Old Testament prophets is an anger that flows from love, rather as a mother who sees one of her children harming another of her children will be angry. For many decades of the 20th century, the Western Church emphasized personal salvation and holiness and largely ignored the Bible's teaching about social justice. And when you ignore something for long enough, you lose the awareness of it, so much so that you don't see it when it's staring you in the face. So if you ignore God's desire for a just society, it actually becomes very different, difficult to read the Old Testament in the right way. If we lose sight of why God might be justly angry, we end up thinking God is just angry. There's a difference between God being justly angry and just angry. And when you put into the equation all that there is in the Old Testament about the power of God, this becomes a quite terrifying prospect. Churches that contribute to making a just world are teaching God's love in word and deed. They have his anger in true perspective. But for many years, the Western church ignored all of this. It closed its ears to the call for social justice and concern. And so it ended up substituting the God who was justly angry at the lack of justice with a God who was just angry. Terrifying. So it was that a few weeks ago, I listened in this church to the rector telling us of his concerns about a real injustice in our city. And I felt so pleased to belong to a church where these things are noticed and spoken about. Alan was speaking about the way the Queen's Hills development has been arranged with only one road to take you in and out of the estate. I went to see somebody I know who lives there and the lack of access is producing massive injustices. It limits the choice of schools that children can reach and so in this age of choice, there is very limited choice. In fact, there's really no choice at all because you can't get anywhere than to the school that is nearest and that with difficulty. 
when we had the general election, they received very little information about the candidates, with the exception of the BNP, who have been quick to see their opportunities. So what I should like to suggest is that Holy Trinity takes a leaf out of Habakkuk's book, that we wait upon the Lord to see if he wishes to act through Holy Trinity in that part of the city. And that is where I'd like to leave you, to wait upon the Lord. Amen.